Chapter Fourteen of Pioneer Work in the Alps of New Zealand by Arthur Paul Harper. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Gail Timmerman Vaughan. Chapter Fourteen, Landsborough River, into Landsborough Valley. New Year's Day, no birds, starvation rations, a forced march, Host Pass track, return up river, Broderick's Pass, back at Christmas Flat. It is always best to camp, if possible, near some scrub, in case of bad weather, for it would be very wretched to be without a fire for two or three days. From the Karangarua saddle, it seemed that four hours' good travelling would be necessary before the first scrub was reached, which meant about seven hours from Christmas Flat. Accordingly, on the morning of December 29th, I sent Bill away at six o'clock, and followed three hours later with light loads. Unfortunately, instead of two hours to the top of the pass, he took nearly seven, finding the climb, quote, too tipi, steep, peri luff, end quote. Consequently, instead of leaving the pass at 11 a.m. for our descent into the Landsborough, we did not leave until 2 p.m. On looking over the stores on the saddle, I saw that we should be running very close to short rations, unless we had luck, for there was a distance of at least 25 miles to go down this valley and after the return there was the twain valley to do the trip down the landsborough and back i calculated would take at least eight and perhaps ten days but as no one had been into the valley since it was first explored some years ago by douglas we expected to find an unlimited supply of cockapoes it would not therefore be necessary to take much food these birds as stated previously live only in districts covered with birch forests and the whole of the country from the landsborough to jackson's bay and even further, is birch country. About five years before, a party, of which Mr. Muller, then chief surveyor of Westland, was a member, led by Douglas, made the first exploration of the Landsborough River by the North Bank. During that trip, the whole party of six had only carried a little flour and limbed entirely on cockapoes, which were so plentiful that Douglas says they, quote, had to tie the dog up. She caught too many, end quote. The river is unfordable, from the moment it leaves the glacier, and hitherto no one had traversed the south bank, so I had every reason to anticipate no trouble in finding birds, for we should be the first to travel down that side. Accordingly, I decided to leave as much food as possible under the rock, on the pass, for our two days' work on the Twain River. We therefore took seven or eight pounds of flour, some tea, sugar, a little chocolate, cocoa, and treacle, enough to last us with luck and birds for ten days. In fact, so certain was I that we should have no lack of birds, that I almost decided to take nothing but tea and sugar. In addition to the food, we had camera, instruments, a blanket each, field books, ice axe, eight by ten fly, a small axe in case it was necessary to cut a tree for sparring a creek, the homemade light loads of about thirty-five pounds. The Maori no likey, the climb down the snow couloir, but the rope eased his mind greatly, and when he got onto the glacier below, down which we had to go for nearly a mile, the poor old fellow was very unhappy. He pushed one foot gingerly along in front, and brought the other up to it, and so on, having grave doubts whether the ice would bear his weight. However, in a quarter of an hour he felt happier, and when he got onto the surface moraine, he, like he more, and stepped out like a man, being quite convinced that he was off the glacier. I here unroped, and was pushing ahead, when I heard an exclamation behind me, and found that the Maori had stepped on a piece of thinly covered ice, with the usual result of sitting down with more speed than grace. 
On turning round to get up, he saw that he was still on ice, and with a most ludicrous expression of surprise, he said, Golly, I me tink no more ice. When we ultimately reached the lateral moraine, he was still very doubtful and fully expected to find ice cropping up somewhere. I do not know if anyone has had a Maori on a glacier before, but imagine this was the first time that one has been on alpine rope, and, considering all the superstitions concerning the ranges that Maoris have, I consider Bill showed uncommon pluck in facing it as he did. I could see he was in a regular funk, but he showed his courage by setting his teeth and not betraying it, except by his colour, which was yellow. Below the glacier for two miles, the river runs between high terraces in a channel cut down through old moranic and other deposits, there being a large grassy plateau, 4,300 feet above sea level, on each side of and 300 feet above the river. This is covered with large erratic blocks, and is cut through by the Spence Creek at one mile and Leblanc at two miles, which flow from the glaciers of those names between high terraces. These two glaciers are both near the river, and the streams from them are black with slaty silt, and rush down over large boulders at a great pace. Both gave us considerable trouble to ford, and the latter especially being really dangerous enough to be unpleasant, for we had to step on to large stones a foot under water, between which the stream was deep, and owing to the dirtiness of the water we could only find the next stone by feeling with the ice-axe. The stream was running like a mill-race, which made it the more difficult to make a sure step. Here, at 3,520 feet, we found the first burnable scrub, and made a rough shelter with a piece of canvas under a rock about sunset, having taken thirteen hours over a journey, which could have been done in seven hours, had my companion been any good in rough country. The Maori worked like a man and did his best, but owing to short-sightedness was painfully slow. It was fortunate that I had made a point of reaching a place where we could have a fire, for it rained for two days but we were not at all happy as there was only room for one of us to sit up at a time however bill was peri tiffy stiff so he was not sorry to lie down most of the day the reason of this discomfort was that we could not find any poles to pitch our fly properly had we been in a better place for timber we should have been happy enough on the moraine of the mercero i had killed a kia with a stone but had seen no other birds consequently our flower began to dwindle rapidly and by the end of the second day we had little left though limiting ourselves to a small slice of bread per meal and a stick of chocolate on the last day of eighteen ninety four my diary states that quote, this is a poor game when caught in bad weather under a stone where only one can sit upright at a time we can neither return nor go on everything is in flood when limited to two small slices of bread a day and no birds the fun begins Bill and I have been talking of our first kakapo all day, and are beginning to doubt if any birds exist. Menu for the last dinner of 1894. Quote, a conversation about kakapo and wekas, dessert, a slice of bread and cup of cocoa, end quote. This shelter we named Musk Camp, because here our only firewood was mountain musk, as it is generally called. It is a scrub of the myrtle species of a sage-green color, and grows to a height of four feet. The leaves, when burnt, smell very like incense, and are not unpleasant to mix with tobacco. It only grows above the 2,500 feet level, a pure alpine shrub. There is another kind, of which I have only found two specimens, with a large leaf and slightly different scent when burned. This I call the incense plant, and found it in the Douglas River, near the Margent Glacier. 
also one specimen in the Waiho country. To burn a little of either shrub in a room has a delightful effect, and is much liked by those who have had it brought to them from the ranges. The former is found on both sides of the divide. January 1st, 1895 was dull, but the rain had stopped, therefore we pushed on down the valley. A few miles below Musk Camp, on the northern side, a fine glacier sweeps down off Fett's Peak, right into the valley to 2,950 feet above the sea, having its terminal face for a quarter of a mile washed by the Landsborough River. About four miles from the camp, a very large creek from the Arthur Glacier, on the dividing range, descends in a series of cascades through a fine gorge, and then bursts out over great stones into the river. We arrived here at 3 p.m. and found it uncrossable, so built a shelter for the night, hoping it would be lower next morning. We dined off one skinny hia and a quarter of a scone each. Bill felt peri-sore inside, making knee peri-weak, but it could not be helped. A rough day after breakfasting off a conversation concerning wekas is not easy work, and to have to finish it with only a mouthful or two of kia and bread is trying, to say the least of it. About sunset, we heard wekas, kiwis, and kakapos within fifty yards of us, across the river. The Landsborough has a mighty volume of water in it, and rushes down at a great pace in its rapid descent. It is unfordable from the glacier for thirty miles of its course. It spreads out onto large flats at this point, and could be forded by a horse, if such an animal could by any chance be brought to the spot. Consequently, unable to cross the river, we had to sit and listen to the birds quite close to us, and hunger in silence like Tantalus. Quote, Egens benigne semper dapis, end quote. On the morning of the second, thanks to a hard frost in the night, the creek was four inches lower and enabled us to cross by jumping from boulder to boulder, most risky work, but accomplished without accident. A mile or so below camp I saw a weasel in the bush close to the river, which explained the absence of birds on this bank. Weasels have been turned out over the Haas Pass by some officious person, and have found their way all along the south bank of the valley, but so far have not been able to cross to the other side. Soon after midday we reached the first piece of flat travelling, and continued to meet with small flats, between a mile or two of rough travelling, until the evening when we camped opposite Mount Dechen, some eight miles from, and 1,283 below, the last camp. We got no birds, and were pretty well done up for want of food, having to breakfast and dine off the same conversation, and a small slice of bread, about four by three inches. Next day we again moved on, and travelled till 6 p.m. over extensive flats of open Pakihi land in the birch forest, with short stretches of bad travelling in between, and one or two nasty creeks to cross. At 5 p.m. we found three wekas, and as soon as we came to a good place to camp, in about an hour, we kindled a fire and had the three birds roasting on three sticks, and with three hot stones inside them. In half an hour they were standing up in the ground in front of us, while we cut, sliced, and devoured them, in another half-hour three sticks were all that remained, Jack, the Maori, and myself, having given a very good account of ourselves. A weka is equal to a commoner garden fowl, so three birds between two men is a fair meal. I had very little to guide me, as to the whereabouts of the pass I was to report on, and did not know where it could be on this side of the range, but from instructions received before starting up the Karangarua, I imagined that it would be near this camp. However, Bill's boots were quite worn out, and even had we plenty of stores, it would be folly, if not cruelty, 
to make him attempt a return journey in such footgear. I therefore decided to push on down the river next day. About fifteen miles below here, the Host River joins the Landsborough River, flowing from the Host Pass, eighteen hundred feet, over which a transinsular horse track has been formed for some years from the west coast to Otago. On the beach at the mouth of the river, twenty-five miles from the junction of the Host, is a store, and the same distance up the valley track from the junction would take us to Stewart's sheep station in Otago. Mr. Stewart had been the first to cross the pass, on which Sir Julius von Host afterwards placed his own name, in the early sixties, and put cattle on the very extensive flats which are found at the junction of the two rivers, three hundred feet. To reach these flats and the track which skirts them involve fifteen miles of rough travelling, interspersed with long stretches of level going. I decided to go on as far as this track, and then either to go over to Stewart's station or down to the store on the beach, in order to get Bill a pair of boots. I had heard, however, that part of the track was to be repaired during the summer, and was in hopes that we should find a road party at work, who could perhaps satisfy our wants, and save the extra twenty-five miles. I intended to go alone, but Bill did not care about being left in these solitudes, so we both set out on the following morning, leaving everything in our shelter. The travelling seemed easy, unburdened as we were, but a climb of eleven hundred feet over a bluff was trying to us after our long fast. This is a good illustration of the trouble caused by bluffs on the rivers, where a spur descends toward the stream and ends abruptly in a cliff, at the foot of which the river flows deep and swift. After ascending and descending eleven hundred feet through bush, we emerged five or six hundred yards only from the point at which the climb commenced, or two hours' work, and little over a quarter of a mile gained. It was dark before we reached the great flats, at the junction of the two branches, but we managed to find an old hut near the track, the remains of one of Stuart's mustering fares, in which to pass the night. At eight o'clock next morning we were wakened by a blast of dynamite, about two miles away, and knew that for the present our spell of short commons was over, for a road party was at work on the track. Leaving Bill to follow, I hurried across the wide flats and riverbed, forded the host stream, and in an hour was near the road camp. Here I met one of the men, and he would not believe that I had come down the Landsborough, terra incognita to them, but thought I had come over the pass from Otago. However, he soon saw something was wrong when he took me along to his tent and saw me sampling a cold stew, for I could not wait until he had cooked a meal. When I explained that the two of us had travelled forty miles down the river, and had only two kias, three wekas, and a little flour between us, in eight days, he said that accounted for my eating a, quote, cold, greasy old stew, end quote. It also accounted for a good hot meal, which he had ready for me when the stew was finished. I knew Mr. Nightingale, the overseer, so went on and found him, but he did not know me at first in my rags, and with four months' growth of hair and beard, nor did I recognize myself when he gave me a looking-glass. The Maori turned up in due course, and ate twelve large cold doughboys, suet dumplings, while waiting for something to be cooked, and like me, he, quote, feel peri gland, quite full, end quote. We spent four days in this hospitable camp, and were fed up like two turkeys being prepared for Christmas. It will perhaps be remembered that Bill brought me some old newspapers when he rejoined me at Christmas camp, after having taken word down to Scots about Douglas. Consequently, as there were then rumors of complications in Europe resulting from the Tsar's death, 
I was anxious to know whether I belonged to England or Russia. The men at this camp, being on the track, were able to get a mail every fortnight, so they were only two weeks behind in their news, and had papers of more than a month later date than those the Maori had brought me. During our first evening, sitting round the campfire, I asked what the news there was, and was told by one man that Jackson and Corbett, or some such names, had decided not to fight. So I said, Is there no other news? and was informed that there had been no news for months. However, on looking at the papers, I found them full of the mail reports of the Tsar's death, not short cable messages and reassuring cables that the general peace was not likely to be broken. This had apparently not been worthy to be called news, as compared with a possible prize-fight. This, however, is the same all the world over, for I recollect, when quite a small boy, going to England via San Francisco in 1878, the last news from Europe as we left Auckland said that, quote, war inevitable between England and Russia, end quote. On arriving at Honolulu then, the only port of call, a Russian man-of-war lay near the entrance of the harbour, and my parents were most anxious to have the latest news. When the pilot came on board, there was such a rush that my father could not get near to him, so waiting until he got an opportunity, he said to one of the passengers, Well, what news? to which the passenger replied, Confound it! His name begins with a P. The rush had not been to ascertain whether war was declared, or whether the man of war was going to cut off the mails, but only to settle a sweepstake on the pilot's name. It was most amusing to see Jack's behavior here. When we arrived, he was as well behaved as possible, and did not attempt to steal, but he was only waiting to find out which camp we were going to patronize. As soon as we had established ourselves in Mr. Nightingale's camp, he began to thieve right and left from the other tents. It is owing to this failing that he lost his leg some months previously. Bill caught us plenty of eels and wekas, which were plentiful here, and prevented the double strain of our presence from affecting the stores of our hosts to any extent before the packer came up from the beach with more provisions. The Maori's boots were quite worn out by the time he reached Nightingale's camp and we had a good deal of trouble to get another pair. The packer arrived in due course, and returned to the beach for a few stores for us, but could get no boots, so Bill had to content himself with two old odd ones belonging to some of the men. Having got these, we started on our return trip up the river on January 11th, with a few pounds of rice and flour. The Maori took two days over the journey, as I wanted him to catch some birds on one of the lower flats but I pushed on and reached camp the same evening, doing fifteen miles in eleven hours, which is pretty fast going. The camp was one thousand and three feet above sea level, and seven hundred and fifty above the junction of the Haast. In 1890, Messrs. T. N. Broderick and Sladden crossed from Lake Ohau in Canterbury over a low saddle of four thousand three hundred feet, and descending to the Landsborough River, stayed a night in the valley, and returned to the Canterbury side of the range. As already stated, I did not quite know where to look for this saddle, but on going up the river to the camp, I crossed three open grassy flats absolutely alive with rabbits, and then a fourth and fifth without any of these vermin. The small flat on which we were camping was the sixth, and this had literally thousands of rabbits, the ground being as bare as a barrack yard. When we reached this open space and came out of the trees onto the grass, it seemed as if the whole surface of the ground turned to somersault in sections. In such countless numbers were the rabbits diving into their burrows. The ground looked honeycombed. 
the fact that there were two grassy flats free of bunnies between this point and number three flat showed that they had not come up the river therefore they must have come from the eastern side of the range via some low pass probably broderick's having left the pea rifle at christmas camp and owing to the extreme shyness of the rabbits we could not have got any had we wanted them and the three wekas caught on our arrival here on the way down had saved us the trouble of a possibly useless hunt there were none on the smaller flats above this point the next day was too foggy to attempt an examination of the high country so i hunted wekas and snared two or three while the maori who arrived in the afternoon brought four kakapos and two wekas a heavy load the thirteenth was a wet day but we got nine more wekas a little farther down the river and spent the fourteenth which was again wet in smoking them for future use having lost our salt we had to depend on smoke we now had enough birds to last us till we reached the stores on the pass the fifteenth i spent in ascending broderick's saddle which as i anticipated was above the camp and the rabbits must have come over by that route i also looked at another low pass more to the east but neither was of much use for a road being too precipitous the view into canterbury was very extensive and i gloated over the grand open grassy hills for some time before descending again to the terrible west coast scrub and forest there was however no reason to complain of the bush in the landsborough valley because like all other country covered with birch forest it is fairly easy to travel in the bush is fairly open with fine timber clean-limbed trees of five and six feet in diameter and little undergrowth and when the grass line is reached at three thousand five hundred feet there is none of the usual mountain scrub the trees merely become smaller until they cease from near broderick's pass i took several photographs which were unfortunately spoiled by damp like so many others this year i had to leave the boxes of exposed plates sometimes for weeks under a stone or other shelter to be picked up on our final return to habitation and the damp marked them rather badly a grand view of the hooker range was to be seen from this spur mount hooker eight thousand six hundred and forty four feet across the valley with its great horn of rock rising out of fine ice fields looked as if it would give some trouble to ascend the pure white ice dome of dechen eight thousand five hundred feet some ten miles up the river has a snow line of under five thousand feet and except for innumerable bergschrunds would make an easy climb Dechen is, I think, one of the most beautiful snow domes or cones I have seen. It rises at a gentle angle which gradually becomes steeper at the top, and in its perfect symmetry almost reminded one of the volcanic cone of Taranaki, 8,260 feet, in the North Island, though the actual cone only began at 4,000 feet. Beyond Dechen, the rocky pinnacles of Strachan, 8,359 feet, rose out of sundry fine secondary glaciers and a little further away fett's peak eight thousand ninety two feet showed his fine rock peak an equally hard nut to crack as his neighbour from a climbing point of view miles away to the north-east i picked up the footstool sefton and dwarf which lie at the head of this and the karangarua river four thousand feet below the valley could be followed for twenty miles the first few miles having a broad flat bottom with many large pakihis or grass flats through which the river twisted here and there flowing close against the base of a spur dividing the different flats gradually however as the eye wandered up the valley became narrower till at last no flat places appeared but each spur descended right into the river and formed difficult and rough travelling on the immediate right hand mount mackenzie over eight thousand feet 
raised his rocky summit, with hardly a vestige of snow or ice, a miniature Matterhorn, which, with his shattered rocks, would be a troublesome fellow to climb on this side. At three p.m. a storm of rain wetted me to the skin, and compelled me to descend to camp. On the way down, Jack caught me two cockapos, but the climbing being beyond his powers by the route I took, he went home by the line we ascended, so no further birds could be found. On the 16th we went up to our third camp on the down journey, and had reached a point halfway to Arthur Creek the next day, when more rain compelled us to camp. Here I made another ascent on the 18th, but beyond obtaining some observations and photographs, there was little worth mentioning. We had two empty treacle tins, which we brought in case of necessity, and these we filled with the oil of the cockapoo. This liquid is of a light straw color, and though not as good as weka oil, is very nourishing. As I knew we should find ourselves short of flour till we reached the rat trap, on our return down the Karangarua, I saved all the oil I could to mix with the flour. It is a good, though not very palatable way to economize. The Maori was very happy now, for we had unlimited food, having not yet finished the smoked wekas, and because I got one or sometimes two kakapo on each ascent. They seemed to have been all above the bush line at this time of year, which accounted to some extent for our bad luck on the way down the river. One evening sitting over the fire, Bill mentioned a man whom he had seen at the road camp, and said, He never poor. Never poor, I replied. What do you mean? He always fat, never poor. Of course he's always fat, you old fool, I said. When once a man is fat, he generally remains so. To Maori, said Bill, he's sometimes poor, sometimes fat. He no tucker, he peri poor, but belly full, he peri fat, same as to hen. He meant by this that a Maori gets in good and bad condition in the same way as a weka does, according to his food. I laughed at the notion at the moment, but on looking at my companion next day, I saw that his dusky old face was now shining like a copper kettle, and he looked like a well-groomed horse in a ragged cover, certainly, but still well-groomed. A fortnight previously he cut a sorrowful figure and looked in wretchedly poor condition after the short spell of starvation. I have since been told that the change is quite noticeable amongst Maoris, according to their food. The 19th was cold and wet. The snow was quite low down, but we pushed on in order to cross Arthur Creek before a warm wind came and caused it to flood and getting over far more easily than before, we made a rough shelter opposite Fett's Glacier in a storm of sleet and rain. On the following morning there was little improvement, and we travelled on and crossed the LeBlanc stream, also very low, owing to the cold, and bivouacked out on the grassy plateau, 3,993 feet, about a mile and a half below the McCarrow Glacier, reaching there about five o'clock. The day had cleared during the afternoon, and the peaks began to show, as the clouds slowly disappeared, and by sunset they were all visible, looking glorious in their coating of fresh snow. This was a wild-looking sight for a bivouac, a great grassy basin of two miles by one, with great erratic blocks scattered over it, surrounded on three sides by towering rock and ice-capped peaks, down which avalanches would thunder every half-hour, making poor Bill start and look nervously round over his shoulder, for he never got over his fear of the avalanche thunder. While from a hillock behind, we could see miles down the gradually darkening valley of the Landsborough, in descending which, three weeks before, we had had such a bad time. As the darkness closed in, we gathered some stunted vegetation, which grew in tufts here and there, a few inches high, 
and coaxed the billy until it boiled, and sitting down, watched the last three of the smoked wekas being cooked. They had to be all cooked that evening, as Bill informed me. They were a bit long, i.e. high, but they were none the worse for that, luckily, as we always had good appetites. As usual, when we trusted to the weather being fine, and put up no shelter, it began to rain as soon as we had rolled into our blankets, and with equal cussedness, no sooner had we put the fly up on a rope between the ice axes than it stopped again, and the stars shone out. The Maori explained this by saying, He come, he see over de hill, he say, Golly, two men no camp, he lane, he see again, he say, Demfell have camp, he stop. We were therefore able to use the canvas as an extra blanket after all. Bill's boots were again nearly done for, so instead of going directly into the Twain River, we returned on the 21st over the Karangarua Pass to Christmas Flat, taking some of the stores from the depot on the saddle. It was hardly worth while spending three or four days in going down to Castle's Flat for more stores, though we only had bare provision for a week left. It may have been foolish to risk another starve in the Twain Valley, but I venture to say that most persons would have acted as I did and risked it, instead of going down and up that awful river again. This is one of the occasions on which I cursed my fate at having to do such hard work with only one man, and I am afraid I sometimes wished those who were responsible could have had a few of our experiences before refusing us a third member of our party. However, the twain was still in front of us, so we could not afford to waste time. Accordingly, we only spent a day and a half at Christmas Flat to allow Bill to make himself some Maori sandals, or parara, out of flax. These do not last long, but are capital footgear for ordinary riverbed or other travelling, one pair a day being about the average. On sharp stones, however, as will be seen, they are soon cut to pieces, and three pairs will only do a day's work. Bill was convinced that three pairs would be sufficient for the Twain River, so he made five and left two at the camp when we started on the following day. I spent my day off in washing and generally mending my rags, which hardly resembled clothes, and making a few extra observations, in order that no time need be wasted when we came back out of the Twain River. The geology of this district forms an interesting study, and I greatly regretted my ignorance on that subject. Of course, we brought in hand specimens every day, which we looked upon with little favour when they increased to several pounds in weight, for though a fifty-pound load weighs fifty pounds, I am sure it is heavier if there are twenty pounds of stones in place of twenty pounds of food. These specimens, which have been collected for years by Douglas, and during the last two years by me, are from every valley and almost every range of the southern Alps, on the western slopes, from the Waiho River to Jackson's Bay. They are all in the Hokitika Survey Office, labelled and classified according to their locality, with a dip and strike of the rocks noted on each one. A most valuable collection, which should enable a geologist to do good work. When these will be made use of, I do not know, but only hope they will not die the death of most things, which find their way into a public office. Generally speaking, the main dividing range of the Southern Alps is composed of a reddish sandstone, and a great deal of slate. In fact, the prevailing rock is slate, at most of the places I have crossed. The outer ranges are schist and gneiss. The junction of the two formations is generally near the divide. In the district at the south of Mount Sefton, however, the slate formation appears to extend from the dwarf across to the Hooker Range, and to continue along it for some twenty miles, where it again crosses on to the dividing range. 
the latter seems to be of schist formation from the dwarf to near broderick's pass and then again runs into the slate formation the landsborough river down to this point follows the junction of the two formations the valley having schist on the east and slate on the west side about broderick's pass the river however leaves the schist formation and has cut through the slate and sweeping round has found its way to the sea on the west coast this would lead one to suppose that the hooker range is the original dividing range and that the water of the ancient glacier found its way eastwards of course it requires a geologist to decide this point and many other interesting points but at present no geologist has been into the west coast ranges a great deal that has been written on the subject is pure guesswork and in some cases quite incorrect end of chapter fourteen